the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City, WLCC, Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. At the cross, Jesus conquered his enemies. Who would his enemies be? Well, Satan, sin, death, the curse. But the host of captives, follow me now, that he took back with him to heaven is not a reference to Satan, sin, death, or the curse. And the reason for that, and you can't press this analogy perfectly, the reason for that is because Satan already has access to heaven, and he isn't bound now as a captive. Doesn't Peter tell us that he walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom to devour? He's not bound, and he already has access to heaven. Also, sin and death could not be the captives that Jesus led back or the curse because, you know what, they're not allowed in heaven. There's no sin there. There's no curse there. There's no death there. Nor are the captives people, humans, that Christ physically took back to heaven with him when he ascended to the Father. And the reason we know this, because when you look at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, when he ascended to the Father, he was alone. Welcome to this next session in our verse-by-verse series. When we consider the fact that Jesus went to the cross in order to have the right to give us these spiritual gifts, it puts our refusal to serve him in a completely, shall we say, different light. By refusing to use our spiritual gifts, it is a serious offense to God. That is a very interesting thought on this topic of spiritual gifts. And our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, will continue to teach us about spiritual gifts on today's verse-by-verse program. Verse-by-verse is an extension of the teaching ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, where Steve Kreloff is the pastor. I would encourage you to turn in your Bible now to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, as Pastor Steve continues teaching in our series that is titled Unity and Spiritual Growth. Here is Pastor Steve. The body has to function properly by every part functioning properly. That's the way it is, Paul says, in the body of Christ. Now what Paul does in these verses, he imagines some parts of our bodies being jealous because of the role they play in the body. And that's sheer foolishness, the apostle is teaching. Because if this really took place and they refused to function in the role that they were made for, the foot said, I'm on strike. I'm not an eye. I'd like to be an eye. I'm just a foot way down there. Paul said that that's foolishness. If that took place and they refused to function the role they were made for, then it would be impossible for the body to function properly. And Paul's point is to say to the Corinthians that you're just as foolish 
just as foolish by selfishly wanting more prominent gifts and roles in the body of Christ. They needed to recognize that God has sovereignly placed every member of the church, every member of the body in the precise role that he desires for them. And he's done it by giving them the appropriate gift for that role. And if they don't use their gift, if they're not content with the gift, the result is that the church will not function properly, which is why the Corinthian assembly, part of the reason they were in such a mess. I want you to see an interesting statement made by Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. This may at first be confusing to you, but I'm bringing it up to sort of unconfuse you on this. Paul says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Now, The way this reads, this is how it's translated in my New American Standard Bible. It looks as if Paul is contradicting himself. And maybe some of you have read this, said, I don't understand. Why would he tell them to seek and desire spiritual gifts if God sovereignly gives them? Wasn't that their problem, that they were desiring the showy gifts? So it looks as if having just told them that God is the one who sovereignly overrules everybody, he distributes spiritual gifts It looks as if Paul is now telling them just the opposite, that they need to desire the greater, more prominent gifts, and just go and get them. That is not what Paul is saying, not at all. Grammatically, this verse can be translated as a statement of fact rather than as a command. And the context indicates that this is the case. So it should read something like this. You desire the more showy gifts. You desire those greater gifts, meaning that in their selfishness, the Corinthians were seeking to get the high profile spiritual gifts. Paul is just telling them, that's what you're doing. He's not commanding them to do it. They're already doing it. Therefore, the more excellent way that Paul speaks of, it's just the opposite of selfishness. You know what the more excellent way is? It's called 1 Corinthians 13. It's the way of love. That's exactly the transition that Paul makes. It's the way of love. In chapter 13, he teaches them, use your spiritual gifts in love. If you have the gift of prophecy, and you have the gift of knowledge, and you know all of this, but you don't have love, you are a big nothing. A noisy gong. That's the more excellent way. It's the way that the Corinthians were not handling things. They were trying to use these gifts to draw attention to themselves. Paul says, love thinks of others first. Now, I hope that little background on some of the problems associated with spiritual gifts just help you to understand why it's so important that we understand God's word on this subject and why it's so important that we use our gifts because when we do, the church is better off. The church, Christ's body, functions in a healthy manner with great unity and diversity and harmony while at the same time having wonderful variety that God loves. So, we go back to Ephesians 4. Having introduced the subject of spiritual gifts in verse 7, with the concept of diversity within the unity of the church, Paul moves on in the next few verses to teach us that the one who gives these gifts is Jesus Christ, and how he came to have the right to give us these gifts. Now, you'll read in 1 Corinthians that is the Spirit who distributes them. So we would say it is Christ, through the Holy Spirit, who actually gives us these gifts. So let's move on to look at verse 8 and look at these verses dealing with the giver of spiritual gifts. How did Jesus get that role of giving us these gifts? Verse 8 says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, before mentioning any of the specific 
gifts, which he will get to in verse 11. In this verse, Paul actually goes back to the Old Testament. He is quoting from Psalm 68, which pictures God as a conquering king who comes to the rescue of his people Israel, and he is victorious over his enemies. Now, we're not certain of the precise historical background of Psalm 68. There's some speculating that Bible teachers do about this. No one knows for certain the background, but we do know that it depicts, and this is the important thing, it depicts God is coming to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, ascending Mount Zion, as a triumphant king returning from battle with the spoils and the captives of war. That's what you have to keep in mind, because that's the point. Explaining what happened in ancient times when a conquering king returned from war, John MacArthur, in his commentary on Ephesians, writes this. After a king won such a victory, he would bring home the spoils and enemy prisoners to parade before his people. An Israelite king would take his entourage through the holy city of Jerusalem and up Mount Zion. Another feature of the victory parade, however, would be the display of the king's own soldiers who had been freed after being held prisoner by the enemy. These were often referred to as recaptured captives, prisoners who had been taken prisoner again, so to speak, by their own king and given freedom. Now, Paul says that this is what Jesus Christ did. At the cross, Jesus conquered his enemies. Who would his enemies be? Well, Satan, sin, death, the curse. But the host of captives, follow me now, that he took back with him to heaven is not a reference to Satan, sin, death, or the curse. And the reason for that, and you can't press this analogy perfectly, the reason for that is because Satan already has access to heaven and he isn't bound now as a captive. Doesn't Peter tell us that he walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom to devour? He's not bound, and he already has access to heaven. Also, sin and death could not be the captives that Jesus led back or the curse because, you know what, they're not allowed in heaven. There's no sin there. There's no curse there. There's no death there. Nor are the captives people, humans, that Christ physically took back to heaven with him when he ascended to the Father. And the reason we know this, because when you look at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, when he ascended to the Father, he was alone. Let me read it to you. Acts 1, starting in verse 9. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they, that's the apostles, were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, notice, they're on earth. He's going to heaven, back to the Father They're gazing into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Those would be two angels. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, notice he's the only one, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, as you can see from these verses, when our Lord returned, when he ascended, when he went back to the Father, he didn't take the apostles with him. They're gazing up. He didn't take any other disciples with him. Now, there are some who believe that the host of captives that Paul is referring to are Old Testament saints. That's a popular view among some. And they think that the Old Testament saints who, until the actual death of Christ, that they were confined to a compartment in Hades known as paradise. And they couldn't go to heaven until Jesus actually paid 
for their sins, so they had to have the cross. Now, that's a popular teaching, and there are some very competent Bible teachers who hold to this. I got to tell you, it just seems to me contrived and strained and forced that it seems so foreign to the point that Paul is making here in Ephesians 4. It would seem to me that if that's the point Paul is making, he would be a lot clearer than this. So what is the point that Paul is making? Well, the point that the apostle is making is that after conquering Satan, sin, death, and the curse at the cross, Christ now had some trophies of war. These trophies, being a host of captives, are the former prisoners of the enemy, the enemy being Satan, who now belong to Jesus Christ. He won them at the cross. So who are they? Folks, they're all the people he died for. And that would include us. We were once part of Satan's kingdom, and so was everyone at one time. But now, we are a part of Christ's kingdom. So there is a spiritual ascension, a spiritual aspect of the kingdom he's talking about. That's why I say you can't press it literally, that just like a king in the Old Testament literally took his captives up Mount Zion, that Christ takes the captives up to heaven with him. We're just part of his kingdom Now, so the host of captives are not those who Jesus physically took back with him to heaven because nobody went back with him, but rather they are all for whom Christ died, those who would believe in him, who are now his purchased possession. Even though you were not born at the time, in God's mind, you were and are his purchased possession. You belong to him and you're now part of his kingdom. You've been set free. But Jesus physically ascended. He literally ascended to heaven. Where he is now where? He is now, we're told, at the right hand of God the Father. And when he arrived there, Paul says in verse 8, when he arrived in heaven, when he returned to the Father, he gave gifts to men. So following the analogy of the ancient conquering king who upon returning to his kingdom would celebrate his victory by giving the spoils of war as gifts to his subjects, Paul says that upon arriving in heaven, Jesus celebrated his victory by giving gifts to his Servants, And these gifts are the spiritual gifts that Christ distributes to every single Christian for the purpose of serving him. And in addition, as we'll learn from verse 11, if you look at that, you'll see that Christ takes some of those who are now gifted, and watch this, he gives them as gifts to the church. So that those who are Now, evangelists or pastor teachers, if somebody says, who do you think you are, God's gift to the church? You actually say, yes, yes, I do. So they're gifted and they become gifts to the church. Now, when we consider the fact that Jesus went to the cross in order to have the right to give us these gifts, you know what, it puts our refusal to serve him in a completely different light. By refusing to use our spiritual gifts, it is a serious offense. That's why I say this is not a minor issue. In other words, if Jesus died so that I might have a gift to serve him, then I had better use my gift because not serving him, that's really an insult to him. It's an insult to him saying, you may be the conquering king and exalted one, but I don't care. I don't care. And it's really an insult to what he did at the cross. And that seems to be precisely where Paul is taking us because in the next two verses, the apostle explains the depths of Christ's humiliation that he took in earning the right to be exalted as our victorious king so that he could bestow these spiritual gifts on us. Look at verse 9. It's in parentheses, but it's a very important point. It's a point of clarity that Paul is making. He says, now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean? Except that he also had descended 
into the lower parts of the earth. Now, what Paul is doing in the statement is making it clear that the one he's talking about is none other than Jesus Christ. He's the one who in the previous verse, he means he ascended on high. In other words, this Old Testament reference of Psalm 68, Paul says, I am applying it, and of course Paul was inspired by God, I'm applying it to Jesus Christ. And in reference to Christ, Paul says that the reason he ascended, the reason Jesus ascended on high, which means he returned to heaven to be with his father, is because he had previously descended by coming to earth. You can't have an ascension unless you have a descension. Now, there are some who teach that when Paul speaks of the lower parts of the earth where Christ went, that this is a reference to his descent into Hades, That comes before hell. Hades is temporary. Hell is permanent. But they would say it's a reference to his descent into Hades between the time of his death and his resurrection. In case you've ever wondered, where was Jesus in his spirit at that moment? Now, it does appear that this is what Peter does teach in 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. I'm not convinced that's what Paul is teaching here. But it is a biblical truth. For example, we read in 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. For Christ also died for sins once and for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, notice this, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. The spirits would be the demonic host. This proclamation, this is not a second chance of the gospel. This is not evangelizing. This proclamation is Christ's announcement of his victory to the demons in Hades. So I believe that that is taught in scripture. However, that once again, it seems so foreign, and I think it is so far removed from what Paul is teaching us in Ephesians 4. Once again, grammatically, let me say this, it can be translated, and I think it should be translated as the English Standard Version does. He also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. In other words, the lower regions are the earth. In other words, what Paul is teaching is that Christ's ascension from earth to heaven must mean that he had previously come down from heaven to earth. It isn't all that complicated. And the coming down that he's talking about is in his incarnation, his first coming, when he laid aside the outward manifestation of his glory, never laying aside his deity, but the outward appearance, outward manifestation of his glory to become a human being. Paul elaborates on this, and I think this is important in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to explain why this is so significant. And I think it's not always easy to understand, but I'm going to explain in Philippians 2, starting in verse 4, we read this. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. What a profound verse. What a convicting statement to all of us. Why should we do this? Well, we are to have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? was in Christ. Paul says, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, watch this, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now watch, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me explain. 
Jesus because he humbled himself by coming to earth and paying for our sins in his death, he has been exalted. Now you may say, but wasn't he the exalted son of God already? Absolutely, absolutely. This exaltation does not concern Christ's nature or his eternal place within the Trinity. He has always been God, he always will be God, but now, now something different has happened. Now he has been exalted by having a new identity as the God-man. He was never a man before. He came to earth, he humbled himself, he became a man. He is forever the man Christ Jesus. Forever the man Christ Jesus. He returned to heaven, not in the form that he left. He returned to heaven as the exalted God-man. And how high has he been exalted? Verse 10 says, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Paul says that Jesus is exalted as the God-man. He is exalted above all the heavens. What does that mean? It means he's been exalted to the throne of God, to the throne of God the Father, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father as the God-man. And he rules over the entire universe as the God-man. And notice why Paul says that he's been exalted to rule over the universe. What's the purpose of all this? So that he might fill all things. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that he fills the entire universe with blessings, his blessings, especially the blessings that he bestows upon his church. And how does he bestow these blessings? By giving the church gifted men who will help them to grow spiritually. And that's why in verse 11, he talks about these men who are gifted, who are the gifts, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. And the next time we study Ephesians, we'll look at who these men are and how Christ uses them to bless his church. Now sometimes, sometimes when we study about Christ being so exalted and so majestic in the heavens, it's almost as if we can lose sight in his majesty of the fact that he is still the same loving Jesus who humbled himself to die for your sins. He hasn't changed in his nature. He's exalted, but remember, he still has the same tender heart of mercy that brought him to earth to save you. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Sometimes we can think of him as so distant, so exalted, that we can't even grasp his tender heart of mercy. So I say to you, draw close to him. Draw close to him. Use your gifts to serve him. He earned the right to give them to you, so use them for his glory. And if you don't know Christ, listen, the only gift you need to be concerned about, need to be thinking about, is one gift. It's not spiritual gifts. It's the gift of salvation, which he offers freely to those who will trust him to be their Savior and Lord. Please trust him. Make sure you know him. Know him as Savior. Know him as Lord. Let's pray. Father, Having looked at this challenging few verses in Ephesians, I pray that you'll grip our hearts with the importance of serving you, Lord. That you're the exalted one and you won us at the cross. And you have chosen to bless your church through gifted people like us. Help us, Lord, to take serving you seriously. To take serving you in the context of the church seriously because that's what you're talking about. And Lord, help us. Help us to see you as tender-hearted, loving and kind 
not so exalted that we can't even enter your presence and love you as our, not only savior, but as our friend, as our brother, our exalted brother. Lord, thank you. Thank you for taking on a body. Thank you for being the God-man now, and you will forever be that. And we pray that as we continue studying these verses, that you just open them up to us, Lord, that you give us insight, great insight into what the church is supposed to be. So many are ignorant of this. Help us to be enlightened and then function as we should. And I pray for any here, Lord, who may not have ever received the gift of eternal life. I pray that you'll bring about in their hearts and minds, grant them repentance and true faith that they might turn to Christ and be saved. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Sometimes when we study about Christ being so exalted in the heavens, it's almost as if we can lose sight of the fact that he is still the same loving Jesus who humbled himself to die for our sins. It is important for us to draw close to him and use our spiritual gifts to serve him. Thanks for tuning in to today's verse-by-verse program. I have greatly appreciated Pastor Steve Kreloff's teaching on the spiritual gifts. I've gained a new understanding of what they are all about, and I hope you have also. We will continue with the series we are calling Unity and Spiritual Growth on the next verse-by-verse program. Please join us next time and tell a friend about how verse-by-verse has been a blessing to you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.